the reading is from Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father and mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth is what makes him unclean. And then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees are offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they're blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then goes out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. about uh, holiday reading and uh, in November 2007 uh, it wasn't holiday reading I bought this book uh, produced by Jonathan Aiken, a former disgraced conservative member of parliament uh, who wrote this in Belmarsh prison and it's called Prayers for People Under Pressure it's a very good book and uh, I would uh, commend this uh, to you Uh, It has uh, prayers for all circumstances. Uh, You can look at the contents. If you want to um, purchase this, you see Charles Wallace after the service. The reason I'm going to read this prayer to you actually has nothing to do with the sermon at all, as you shall discover. Um, But watching the television and seeing these uh, soldiers brought back uh, and um, walking through Wooten Bassett with this uh, trail of coffins draped with the Union Jack is very humbling and it makes us think about our freedom and all the things that we often take for granted Uh, this is a prayer that um, is called Finding God When Close to Death and it's written by a soldier uh, who was killed in action in North America in 1944 and this is 
This is what's going on. Let me read it to you. Look, God, I have never spoken to you. And now I want to say, how do you do? You see, God, they told me you did not exist, and I, like a fool, believed all this. Last night, from a shell hole, I saw your sky. I figured that they had told me a lie. Had I taken time before to see things you had made, I should have known they weren't calling a spade a spade. I wonder, God, if you would shake my poor hand. Somehow I feel you would understand. Strange, I had to come to this hellish place before I had time to see your face. Well, I guess there isn't much more to say but I'm glad, God, I met you today. The zero hour will soon be here, but I'm not afraid to know that you are near. The signal has come. I shall soon have to go. I like you lots. This I want you to know. I'm sure this will be a horrible fight. Who knows? I may come to your house tonight. Though I wasn't friendly to you before, I wonder, God, if you would wait at your door. Look, I'm shedding tears. Me shedding tears. Oh, I wish I had known you these long, long years. Well, I have to go now, dear God. Goodbye. But now that I've met you, I'm not scared to die. That was discovered on his body following that conflict. Prayers are very powerful things and often they're very personal things. Um, that I was reading this book and it coincided with watching the news and thinking about how you make sense of these young men being brought home in the prime of life. It's very sad, isn't it? And yet through that, God can speak to us all the stages in life. This is the fifth of uh, five sermons that we are looking at different aspects of discipleship. If you like, a different perspective, different window each time. And this one is called, Following Jesus Means Being Prepared to Offend. Being Prepared to Offend. While I was preparing this, uh, I had to take my car in for an MOT. And the mechanic saw me and uh, told me a most obscene joke that he thought was funny. As I gave him the keys, I said to him, I hope your mechanical skills are better than your sense of humor. I think he took that as an offense. I hope he did. I didn't deliberately go out to offend him. But it would have been a negation of my discipleship to laugh at something so obscene and racist. To what extent are we prepared to give offense on the basis that we love Jesus, not because we're having a bad day? That's the real issue here. Discipleship, following the Lord Jesus, keeping company with him, sometimes may make you uncomfortable in other people's company. So the issue of taking or giving offense, either me personally, I'm taking it or I'm giving it. 
And in this context, if you keep uh, Matthew 15 open in front of you, you will see particularly at the key verse from verse 12, is this, that Jesus is the one who is giving offence. This Jesus, who is sinless and perfect and holy and the Son of God, is issuing an offence. And the disciples are not very happy with it. There you have it. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? What you are saying is offensive to the Pharisees. Jesus, I'd be careful if I were you. So it's either personally taking or giving offence, or being sensitive to others. Sometimes we might take up the cause of other people. Sensitivity to others, their culture and religion and background is, is an issue today. I'll give you another example of how not to um, give offence. Uh, two years ago we had a party in the park. And I was inviting various people to come and I was saying that we have a tug of war, we have face painting, we have live music and various other activities. And I'm talking to Sadiq Mohammed and say, oh, by the way, we also have a pig roast. That's good, isn't it? You can do it inadvertently. And it's okay. But you know, when you go out to do it, it's not okay. The only way not to make a mistake is don't do anything. And, and to, to, to suffocate in selfish isolation. Better to take a chance and say sorry, surely. So from Matthew 15:1 to 20, what you have here is this incredible clash of tradition and truth. Now, which is going to give way is of supreme importance. So a simple outline of the reading comes like this. First of all, verses 1 to 11, the confrontation of the Pharisees. They come and, and they throw the gauntlet out to Jesus with that question as it is in verse 2. And then you see the concern of the disciples. They say, Jesus, you better back off. This isn't good. And then lastly, Peter is completely confused by these events that are taking place. Well, that's where we're going, and that's the lay of the land. This confrontation of the Pharisees. Look in verse 2. They came. It's a formal delegation. They didn't just happen to be there. They purposely came to meet with Jesus. They heard him, and then they come with a question. There it is, verse 2. And by the way, it's nothing to do with swine flu. It's coincidental, isn't it? Why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders and don't wash their hands before they eat? Washing your hands before you eat is a good thing. A good thing. Superficially, it doesn't make sense. But if just a brief comment on the background. It means this ceremonial washing in a certain way which is a tradition that's been handed down, handed down, symbolizing the purity of God. They weren't doing that. They weren't kosher. Now, Jesus' reply is quite incredible. And, and get this. I know it's a bit complicated, but we'll, we'll press on. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, The great commandment, which is the glue that holds society and community together, religious or irreligious. Honour your father and mother. The commandment with a great promise and a blessing linked to it. 
That's what God said. Anyone who curses his father or mother should be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother or to his parents, this is in quotations, quoting their tradition, okay, whatever help might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. In other words, it's the let out clause. I am not responsible for my parents. Here I am, suppose I have a parent who is languishing in a nursing home or has Alzheimer's. And I say, you know, I have given a very generous gift to the church. And because of that, I have washed my hands of my responsibility for my parents. Now that is monumental hypocrisy. And that's what they were doing. There was a technical term called Corban. I'm, I'm released of my responsibility. And then Jesus goes for them. Look in verse 6. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now how often we have said that tradition is a good servant but a bad master. Traditions serve us well in communities and families, the way that we do things. So there is the confrontation. You see it head on, this business of... Um, washing and ceremonial cleansing and tradition and so on. And Jesus comes to them and confronts them with turning the questions back to them. Think about it like this, for example. Let's try to illustrate this, make more sense. Um, verses 3 to 6, he challenges them by them saying that the law is more important than love. The love of a parent, the love of a child, or husband, or wife. So, the word of God is emptied, void, nullified. That's what they're doing. The law is a servant to point to the love of God. Don't stay at the signpost. Go to him. Go to him. Another thing that Jesus challenges them with is this, that the lesser has become more important than the greater. And so they have trivialized the word of God. You see this in, in verse 7. I can't help but think, have you ever called somebody to their face I consciously don't think I have. In the cold light of day, you hypocrite. Now, you answer that question yourself. That's what Jesus does here. It's quite something, isn't it? Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You are concentrating on the lesser and you are ignoring the greater. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It becomes a heartless religion. And ultimately, of course, a pointless one. 
And the external becomes more important than the internal. What people think about us becomes more important than what God thinks about us. I had a flashback to this some uh, 31 years ago in this village. On the first occasion, and we've kept this tradition going for the last 31 years, of having a Christmas service with St. Mary's one year and Long Crendon Baptist Church the next year. I did two mistakes when I went to St. Mary's uh, 31 years ago. The first, I didn't take enough clothes. And the second, I took my coat off when I went into church. One usually does that. I froze to death. O'Camoli Faithful was chattered through. It's the last carol of the, of the service. Well, that's not the criticism. That's okay. And by the way, there are no lose there either. You know, that chill that you get. <laughs> the criticism was this. That when we were coming out of church, they had spent a fortune with these massive arc lights lighting up the outside. And I thought this is utterly absurd. I, I and went public on it. Which, when you're young and, you know, well, there you go, name and shame. But isn't it absurd? It is, you know. That is utterly absurd. It's a beautiful 13th century tower and it's lovely when it's lit up. But to do that at the cost of heating the church is a classic example of the external Impression is more important than the internal, than the reality. And it is often the blight of religion. Baptists do it like Anglicans just as much. That just happens to be a classic illustration. And finally, in this sort of con confrontation, the temporal is more important than the eternal. It's just this life and this life and nothing else. So you see verses 10 to 11. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. This is the very essence of the gospel of the kingdom. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him, quote unquote, do you see it? Unclean in that ceremonial sense. But what comes out of his mouth, this is what makes him unclean. So much for this confrontation. Now the disciples. Okay, the sermon's over. Or the parable is finished. And this is their concern. And so verses 12 to 14, look at it. The, the disciples come to Jesus and say, pull him aside. You know, look, th this, is, this, this is too much. This is really too much. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you? No, the Pharisees were the top of the rung culturally. They were extremely wealthy. They had old money. They had influence. They were part of the civic and legal system. You don't quarrel with Pharisees. Jesus did when it comes to truth. The disciples are afraid. And they have cause to be. And they say, back off, Jesus. You're in trouble. You're in enough trouble. Don't say anything more. Tone it down. Adapt a little. Dilute it a bit here and there. Ease up. Be careful. All those things. How extraordinary that Jesus again deliberately 
goes further. See how this is building up. He goes further. He's not barking off. And he says, which is a real put down, why be afraid of plants that are rootless? Plants that are dying, that are withering in the searing heat in the Middle East. And why be afraid of blind guides who can't see where they're going? So you see in verse 13, and for Jews this is, this is a real insult, you know, because they were pictured as the vine. That's the symbol of the Jews. And Jesus says they are rootless and fruitless. Not something. That's the heading of the sermon. Following Jesus means being prepared to offend. Now it doesn't mean being prepared to be offensive. There's enough of that. And so he says, verse 14, leave them alone. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into disaster. And lastly, Peter's often the spokesman. He sort of says things other people are thinking. And so in verses 15 to 20, you see, Peter said, explain the parable to us. And uh, Jesus says, are you so dull? Why are you so thick? Can't you even understand this? You are missing the point. So often, I guess, in church, that's the whole thing, isn't it? We miss the point. It's a cliche, isn't it? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's where the problem lies. And you need a change of heart. And so what does he say? Look, don't you see, verse 17, that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach and then out of the body? That's the question. But, okay, that's normal. But the things that come out of the mouth, where do they come from? Are we going to blame society or the politicians or our parents? Heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And formal Christianity and Jewish religion cannot change the heart. Cannot change the heart. So Jesus says then, and now just read the Sunday papers any time. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But coming back to the subject, eating with unclean hands does not make him unclean. And you see this radical gospel. This radical gospel. And out of the confusion of Peter, it's not what enters into the mouth but it is what comes out of it. Where did that come from, do you sometimes say? The answer is, from the heart. David saw it in his extramarital affair, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. He didn't say, give me another start. He needs that. Creating me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Food doesn't affect the heart. Of course we should wash our hands. Of course we should. But it's the issue of the heart. It's inside, not outside. 
finally then two dangers as we try to wrestle with some of these things with our own traditions let's try to conclude by thinking about ourselves here we are we call ourselves an evangelical church that means we've got a high view of the Bible but we ourselves are often ruled by our traditions I have known churches you know to divide and split not over the truth but how you interpret the truth not on things that are of supreme importance, but of secondary, not even secondary importance. It's very easy to preach a sermon like this, but somehow we must see this as a mirror of ourselves. We can, there are two dangers. Let me just put this to you very simply. There's the Bible minus and the Bible plus. The Bible minus are people who will question things like the incarnation, physical resurrection, the authentic gospel, the deity of Christ, that sort of thing. Now, as evangelicals, we are good at that, and we could spot a heresy a mile off. We're good at that, and that's no bad thing. Where we're not so good is when it comes to Bible plus. Some of the greatest uh, paintings, works of art, it is said, even the Mona Lisa has been embellished. Just some artist has come along after and has given a little bit of a touch there, a bit of shade here, and a bit of color there. And here we have the Holy Bible. And as evangelicals, we put a little bit of this and, and a bit of that. And we would, well, take Martin Luther. Martin Luther, for example, in 1517, challenged the church he loved, the church he was prepared to die for, with all of its sacrament and its symbolism, he loved it. But speaking to the pontiff and the cardinals of Rome, this was his point. You sit above God's word and you are its judge. I sit beneath it and am thereby judged. That's exactly the same here. These Pharisees, perhaps modern day equivalent, we sit above God's word. And we say with a sense of arrogant dismissiveness, of course science has disproved that and this, that and the other. And we take that away and take this away. When it comes to God's word, offending us I say to you humbly we take it under the chin and we would say this that God has a better track record than anyone else and I'm with him and if I somehow think that I have to understand everything and that he has to come to my level before I can commit myself to him I humbly say to you and this is a bit of an offense that is an arrogant position to take now, the other extreme, of course, is you say you have to commit intellectual suicide before you become a Christian. Not so. But being a brain science isn't itself grounds for being a Christian either. It is to recognize that I have a problem in my heart that only Jesus can change. And no external religion, no intellectual prowess, none of that can can get to the heart of the problem. 
I can remember becoming a Christian and being offended by the evangelist. It was the means of my salvation. And sometimes God has to humble us before we're prepared to admit that we need him. I hope that God's truth doesn't offend, but fills us with new hope and purpose and joy and peace as we believe, even though we admit that there's many things that we don't understand. King about uh, holiday reading and uh, I, in November 2007, uh, it wasn't holiday reading, I bought this book uh, produced by Jonathan Aitken, a former disgraced conservative member of parliament, uh, who wrote this in Belmarsh Prison and it's called Prayers for People Under Pressure. It's a very good book and uh, I would uh, commend this uh, to you. Uh, it has uh, prayers for all circumstances. Uh, you can look at the contents. If you want to um, purchase this, you see Charles Wallace after the service. The reason I'm going to read this prayer to you actually has nothing to do with the sermon at all, as you shall discover. Um, but watching the television and seeing these uh, soldiers brought back uh, and um, walking through Wharton Bassett with this uh, trail of coffins, draped with the Union Jack is very humbling and it makes us think about our freedom and all the things that we often take for granted. Uh, this is a prayer that um, is called Finding God When Close to Death and it's written by a soldier in, uh, who was killed in action in North America in 1944 and this is, this is what's going on. Let me read it to you. Look, God, I have never spoken to you. And now I want to say, how do you do? You see, God, they told me you did not exist, and I, like a fool, believed all this. Last night, from a shell hole, I saw your sky. I figured that they had told me a lie. Had I taken be time before to see things you had made, I should have known they weren't calling a spade a spade. I wonder, God, if you would shake my poor hand. Somehow I feel you would understand. Strange, I had to come to this hellish place before I had time to see your face. Well, I guess there isn't much more to say but I'm glad, God, I met you today. The zero hour will soon be here, but I'm not afraid to know that you are near. The signal has come. I shall soon have to go. I like you lots. This I want you to know. I'm sure this will be a horrible fight. Who knows? I may come to your house tonight. Though I wasn't friendly to you before, I wonder, God, if you would wait at your door. Look, I'm shedding tears. Me shedding tears. Oh, I wish I had known you these long, long years. Well, I have to go now, dear God. Goodbye. But now that I've met you, I'm not scared to die.
that was discovered on his body following that conflict. Prayers are very powerful things and often they're very personal things. Um, that I was reading this book and it coincided with watching the news and thinking about how you make sense of these young men being brought home in the prime of life. It's very sad, isn't it? And yet through that, God can speak to us at all the stages in life. This is the fifth of uh, five sermons that we are looking at different aspects of discipleship, if you like, a different perspective, different window each time. And this one is called, Following Jesus Means Being Prepared to Offend. Being Prepared to Offend. While I was preparing this, uh, I had to take my car in for an MOT, and the mechanic saw me and uh, told me a most obscene joke that he thought was funny. As I gave him the keys, I said to him, I hope your mechanical skills are better than your sense of humor. I think he took that as an offense. I hope he did. I didn't deliberately go out to offend him. But it would have been a negation of my discipleship to laugh at something so obscene and racist. To what extent are we prepared to give offense on the basis that we love Jesus, not because we're having a bad day? That's the real issue here. Discipleship, following the Lord Jesus, keeping company with him, sometimes may make you uncomfortable in other people's company. So the issue of taking or giving offense, either me personally, I'm taking it or I'm giving it. And in this context, if you keep uh, Matthew 15 open in front of you, you will see particularly at the key verse from verse 12, is this, that Jesus is the one who is giving offense. This Jesus, who is sinless and perfect and holy and the Son of God, is issuing an offense. And the disciples are not very happy with it. There you have it. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? What you are saying is offensive to the Pharisees. Jesus, I'd be careful if I were you. So it's either personally taking or giving offense or being sensitive to others. Sometimes we might take up the cause of other people. Sensitivity to others, their culture and religion and background is, is an issue today. I'll give you another example of how not to... Um, give offence. Uh, two years ago we had a party in the park and I was inviting various people to come and I was saying that we have a tug of war, we have face painting, we have live music and various other activities. And I'm talking to Sadiq Mohammed and say, oh by the way, we also have a pig roast. That's good, isn't it? You can do it inadvertently, and it's okay. But you know, when you go out to do it, it's not okay. The only way not to make a mistake is don't do anything. And, and to, to, to suffocate in selfish isolation. Better to take a chance and say sorry, surely. So from Matthew 15, 1 to 20, what you have here is this incredible clash of tradition. 
and truth. Now, which is going to give way is of supreme importance. So a simple outline of the reading comes like this. First of all, verses 1 to 11, the confrontation of the Pharisees. They come and, and they throw the gauntlet out to Jesus with that question as it is in verse 2. And then you see the concern of the disciples. They say, Jesus, you better back off. This isn't good. And then lastly, Peter is completely confused by these events that are taking place. Well, that's where we're going, and that's the lay of the land. This confrontation of the Pharisees. Look in verse 2. They came. It's a formal delegation. They didn't just happen to be there. They purposely came to meet with Jesus. They heard him, and then they come with a question. There it is, verse 2. And by the way, this has nothing to do with swine flu. It's coincidental, isn't it? Why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders and don't wash their hands before they eat? Washing your hand before you eat is a good thing. A good thing. Superficially, it doesn't make sense. But if just a, a brief comment on the background. It means this ceremonial washing in a certain way which is a tradition that's been handed down, handed down, symbolizing the purity of God. They weren't doing that. They weren't kosher. Now, Jesus' reply is quite incredible. And, and get this. I know it's a bit complicated, but we'll, we'll press on. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, the great commandment, which is the glue that holds society and community together, religious or irreligious. Honor your father and mother. The commandment with a great promise and a blessing linked to it. That's what God said. Anyone who curses his father or mother should be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother or to his parents... This is in quotations, quoting their tradition, okay? Whatever help might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father or mother. In other words, it's the let out clause. I am not responsible for my parents. Here I am, suppose I have a parent who is languishing in a nursing home or has Alzheimer's. And I say, you know, I have given a very generous gift to the church. And because of that, I've washed my hands of my responsibility for my parents. Now that is monumental hypocrisy. And that's what they were doing. There was a technical term called Corban. I'm, I'm released of my responsibility. And then Jesus goes for them. Look in verse 6. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now how often we have said that tradition is a good servant but a bad master. Traditions serve us well in communities, in families, the way that we do things. So there is the confrontation. You see it head on, this business of um, washing and ceremonial cleansing and tradition and so on. And Jesus comes to them 
and confronts them with turning the questions back to them. Think about it like this, for example. Let's try to illustrate this to make more sense. Um, verses 3 to 6, he challenges them by them saying that the law is more important than love. The love of a parent, the love of a child, or husband, or wife. So, the word of God is emptied, void, nullified. That's what they're doing. The law is a servant to point to the love of God. Don't stay at the signpost. Go to him. Go to him. Another thing that Jesus challenges them with is this, that the lesser has become more important than the greater. And so they have trivialized the word of God. You see this in, in verse 7. I can't help but think, have you ever called somebody to their face? I consciously don't think I have. In the cold light of day, you hypocrite. Now, you answer that question yourself. That's what Jesus does here. It's quite something, isn't it? Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You are concentrating on the lesser and you are ignoring the greater. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It becomes a heartless religion. And ultimately, of course, a pointless one. And the external becomes more important than the internal. What people think about us becomes more important than what God thinks about us. I had a flashback to this some uh, 31 years ago in this village. On the first occasion, and we've kept this tradition going for the last 31 years, of having a Christmas service with St. Mary's one year and Long Crendon Baptist Church the next year. I did two mistakes when I went to St. Mary's uh, 31 years ago. The first, I didn't take enough clothes. And the second, I took my coat off when I went into church. One usually does that. I froze to death. O'Camoli Faithful was chattered through. It's the last carol of the, of the service. Well, that's not the criticism. That's okay. And by the way, there's no lose there either. You know, that chill that you get. <laughs> the criticism was this. That when we were coming out of church, they had spent a fortune with these massive arc lights lighting up the outside. And I thought this is utterly absurd. I, I and went public on it. When you're young and, you know, well, there you go, name and shame. But isn't it absurd? It is, you know. That is utterly absurd. It's a beautiful 13th century tower and it's lovely when it's lit up. But to do that at the cost of heating the church is a classic example of the external impression is more important than the internal, than the reality. And it is often the blight of religion. 
Baptists do it like Anglicans just as much. That just happens to be a classic illustration. And finally, in this sort of confrontation, the temporal is more important than the eternal. It's just this life and this life and nothing else. So you see verses 10 to 11. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. This is the very essence of the gospel of the kingdom. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him, quote unquote, do you see it? Unclean in that ceremonial sense. But what comes out of his mouth, this is what makes him unclean. So much for this confrontation. Now the disciples. Okay, the sermon's over. Or the parable is finished. And this is their concern. And so verses 12 to 14, look at it. The disciples come to Jesus and say, pull him aside. You know, look. This is, this, this is too much. This is really too much. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you? No, the Pharisees were the top of the run culturally. They were extremely wealthy. They had old money. They had influence. They were part of the civic and legal system. You don't quarrel with Pharisees. Jesus did. When it comes to truth. The disciples are afraid. And they have cause to be. And they say, back off, Jesus. You're in trouble. You're in enough trouble. Don't say anything more. Tone it down. Adapt a little. Dilute it a bit here and there. Ease up. Be careful. All those things. How extraordinary that Jesus again deliberately goes further See how this is building up. He goes further. He's not barking off. And he says, which is a real put down, why be afraid of plants that are rootless? Plants that are dying, that are withering in the searing heat in the Middle East. And why be afraid of blind guides who can't see where they're going? So you see in verse 13, and for Jews this is, this is a real insult, you know, because they were pictured as the vine. That's the symbol of the Jews. And Jesus says they are rootless and fruitless. Not something. That's the heading of the sermon. Following Jesus means being prepared to offend. Now it doesn't mean being prepared to be offensive. There's enough of that. And so he says, verse 14, leave them alone. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into disaster. And lastly, Peter's often the spokesman. He sort of says things other people are thinking. And so in verses 15 to 20, you see, Peter said, explain the parable to us. And uh, Jesus says, are you so dull? Why are you so thick? Can't you even understand this? You are missing the point. So often, I guess, in church, that's the whole thing, isn't it? We miss the point. 
It's a cliche, isn't it? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's where the problem lies. And you need a change of heart. And so what does he say? Look, don't you see, verse 17, that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach and then out of the body? That's the question. But, okay, that's normal. But the things that come out of the mouth, where do they come from? Are we going to blame society or the politicians? Or our parents? Heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And formal Christianity and Jewish religion cannot change the heart. Cannot change the heart. So Jesus says then and now just read the Sunday papers any time. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But coming back to the subject, eating with unclean hands does not make him unclean. And you see this radical gospel. This radical gospel. And out of the confusion of Peter, it's not what enters into the mouth, but it is what comes out of it. Where did that come from, do you sometimes say? The answer is from the heart. David saw it in his extramarital affair, creating me a clean heart, O oh God. He didn't say give me another start. He needs that. Creating me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Food doesn't affect the heart. Of course we should wash our hands. Of course we should. But it's the issue of the heart inside, not outside. Finally, then, two dangers as we try to wrestle with some of these things, with our own traditions. Let's try to conclude by thinking about ourselves. Here we are, we call ourselves an evangelical church. That means we've got a high view of the Bible. But we ourselves are often ruled by our traditions. I have known churches, you know, to divide and split, not over the truth, but how you interpret the truth. Not on things that are of supreme importance, but of secondary, not even secondary importance. It's very easy to preach a sermon like this, but somehow we must see this as a mirror of ourselves. We can, there are two dangers. Let me just put this to you very simply. There's the Bible minus and the Bible plus. The Bible minus are people who will question things like the incarnation, physical resurrection, the authentic gospel, the deity of Christ, that sort of thing. Now, as evangelicals, we are good at that, and we could spot a heresy a mile off. We're good at that, and that's no bad thing. Where we're not so good is when it comes to Bible plus. Some of the greatest uh, paintings, works of art, it is said, even the Mona Lisa has been embellished. Just some artist has come along after and has given a little bit of a touch there, a bit of shade here, and a bit of color there. And here we have the Holy Bible. And as evangelicals, we put a little bit of this and, and a bit of that. And we would, well, take Martin Luther. Martin Luther, for example, in 1517, challenged 
the church he loved, the church he was prepared to die for, with all of its sacrament and its symbolism, he loved it. But speaking to the pontiff and the cardinals of Rome, this was his point. You sit above God's word and you are its judge. I sit beneath it and am thereby judged. That's exactly the same here. These Pharisees, and perhaps modern day equivalent, we sit above God's word. And we say with a sense of arrogant dismissiveness, of course science has disproved that and this, that and the other. And we take that away and take this away. When it comes to God's word offending us, I say to you humbly, we take it under the chin. And we would say this, that God has a better track record than anyone else. And I'm with him. And if I somehow think that I have to understand everything and that he has to come to my level before I can commit myself to him, I humbly say to you, and this is a bit of an offence, that is an arrogant position to take. Now the other extreme, of course, is you say you have to commit intellectual suicide before you can become a Christian. Not so. But being a brain science isn't itself grounds for being a Christian either. It is to recognize that I have a problem in my heart that only Jesus can change. And no external religion, no intellectual prowess, none of that can, can get to the heart of the problem. I can remember becoming a Christian and being offended by the evangelist. It was the means of my salvation. And sometimes God has to humble us before we're prepared to admit that we need him. I hope that God's truth doesn't offend but fills us with new hope and purpose and joy and peace as we believe even though we admit that there's many things that we don't understand.